Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning. I want to welcome everyone to LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department um, and the director of the Fallon United States Center at the LSE which is hosting tonight's event. Well, just about this time last year, the US Center ran a roundtable on what to expect of the Biden presidency. Like tonight, we had a huge turnout on the platform and there were over 25,000 downloads of the video recording afterwards. The hopes and expectations for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were sky high. And I don't know, I could swear when they took the oath of office, I could hear a huge sigh of relief in London. Well, that was then, and this is now, and it's been a full year of of highs, lows, of successes, setbacks. Biden passed a 1.9 trillion pandemic relief package, a 1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package. He rolled out free and effective vaccines, and he brought back a sense of normalcy to the presidency. But it's hardly been smooth sailing for Biden. The botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, the mishandling of the coronavirus testing, and rising inflation have taken their toll. In fact, as we meet tonight, a new Gallup poll today finds that 60% of Americans think that Biden is likable and intelligent. However, just 37% say he's a strong leader and an effective manager of government. What are we to make of all this? To go beyond the headlines and the talking points, we've put together a crackerjack panel of um, experts to help us get some perspective on Biden's first year, how we should assess the presidency in these um, quite extraordinary times and and what we might expect from uh, his administration going forward. In alphabetical order, they include Jacob Hacker, who is the Stanley Resser Professor of Political Science at Yale University. Ursula Hackett, who is a senior lecturer in politics at Royal Holloway, University of London. John Eikenberry, the Albert Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. Mark Landler, the London Bureau Chief of the New York Times and Paula McLean, the James Duke Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Duke University. Welcome to all of you. It's great to have you on the platform. Uh, I can assure you there's a a lot of folks here who are watching who are gonna be very eager to hear what you have to say and are gonna look forward to the opportunity to put questions to you. Um, Before we actually get down to business, let me just say a few words about tonight's format. Uh, To get us started, I asked each of our panelists to take five minutes to share some initial reflections on on the Biden administration's performance at the one-year mark. Did he accomplish more than his critics give him credit for? Were there missed opportunities? And if so, what might he have done better? And how does he look in historical perspective? And I don't only mean in comparison to you know who. We'll be going in in, um, in the following order. Uh, Jacob Hacker will get us started followed by Paula McLean, then John Eikenberry, Ursula Hackett, and Mark Landler will round things out. 
There'll be plenty of time for questions, um, audience questions. So please send your questions to us. Just send them in via the Q&A function on Zoom. Be sure to include your name and affiliation so I can belt those out when I put your questions to the panelists. So now normally at this point, I would ask all of you in the audience, if we were doing this in person here at London, in London, to put your hands together and give our panelists a warm uh, LSE welcome. That of course is not possible tonight. And so in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions to the panelists in the Q&A period. And with that, let me turn to our first speaker, Jacob Hacker. Jacob, it's great to have you with us. Um, so it's been something of a roller coaster, uh, some very, very big ups, some clear disappointments, and the pandemic is still with us. How do you size up Biden's first year? Well, first of all, thank you, Peter, and thanks to LSE and to all my uh, wonderful fellow panelists. Um, it is a great um, moment for us to take stock, um, a difficult moment. Um, you know, when I started thinking about my, my answer to that big question, I, I was reminded of a, uh, a story that I'd heard about when the Chinese premier in 1972 was asked about the French Revolution. He said it was too soon to say what the outcome of the French Revolution was. Um, and then I found out that it was actually the 1968 student protest that he was referring to. And it really was too soon to say um, what the effects were in 1972. Um, and so I do want to say, I really, I really think there's a lot up in the air still. Um, most, most obviously, we don't know whether um, Build Back Better, um, the mansion way, is going to happen. Um, and we, we don't know whether or not, though I think we have more uh, certainty here, and it's not um, it's not comforting um, about whether they'll pass some kinds of democracy reforms before the midterm. Um, but I think you know we should understand that there is uh, a, a lot of uncertainty, and not just because of the pandemic, but also because of the legislative process. Now, uh, 68 um, protest came just two years after a great spaghetti western entitled "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," and so I just want to. I'll, I'll provide the good, the bad, and the ugly in my remaining two and a half or so, three minutes. Um, so good, the economy. Um, I know that that's sort of paradoxical because inflation, um, the fact that we still have major dislocations, but you know we've seen balance sheets of um, workers and families um, inflated um, we, by the American Rescue Plan. We've seen um, I, I, you know, whether it's called the, the, the great um, resignation, or as I like to call it, the great upgrade, um, workers leaving for, for better jobs. Um, we've seen a lot of attention to problems in the labor market that, we're, that we now wish to fix. Um, were it not for the, for the, you know, the uh, 1970s level inflation we're facing, um, the, um, the economy would be seen as a remarkable achievement. Um, so that's the good, um, the bad. Um, so I think this is one of those cases where half a loaf doesn't, you know, is, you know, people say half a loaf is better than none. And we've seen that in the legislative front and a half a loaf right now looks like crumbs, right? Because the expectations were so high. Um, and, um, and it's consumed Washington, of course. So almost everything else has been crowded out by the fights over, um, the build back better legislation. And, and then more recently over the voting rights and democracy reform bills. Um, it's made, it's made the Democratic Party look awful. It's made Joe Biden look like, what, what did you describe him as? Um, 
a, a nice guy, smart guy, but ineffective leader. But um, but you know, it could it could have gone differently. And as I said, we still could see some action, especially on um, with regard to Build Back Better. So that's why I say it's bad. It's not ugly. It's sort of what you would expect under the circumstances when you have such a narrow margin. Um, you know, I mean, basically, it's kind of shocking, but it's true that we're going to have to have, if we're going to get action on climate change, which we desperately need, it's going to be whatever Joe Manchin wants. Um, a West Virginia, you know, senator with ties to the coal industry. Um, so that's maybe that's sort of moving into ugly. Um, so the ugly part is, is, in my view, we face not just an existential threat with climate change, we face a very imminent threat to our democracy. And dealing with the, you know, I'm, I'm going to say it very frankly, right? We're dealing with the Republican Party is advantaged right now, and it looks quite likely to retake both houses of Congress. And it's a fundamentally a liberal party at this point. And that is, a, that is just a threat that in our lifetime, um, in our lifetimes, we've only seen uh, once uh, before, and that was just recently um, with regard to the Trump presidency. And and it's, of course, a threat that's a continuation of the threat of the Trump presidency. And I, I so wish that this had been the number one, the number two, and the number three priority of every group in Washington. But I understand why it wasn't. And I'm not sure that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema would have agreed to uh, relax the filibuster rules um, to pass democracy reform, even if it had been. And so... But to me, that's where we all as citizens really should be focused because we need to step up and protect our democracy because it looks like Congress can. Well, thank you um, for staying right on time. And, and those are a terrific set of opening comments. I do want to circle back to the reform questions and also the, the House um, uh, January 6th committee and what we might expect, but we have plenty of time for, for that. Um, um, Paula, welcome back to uh, LSE Online. Uh, you were with us on the platform last January. A lot of water has passed under the bridge since then. So how does the, how does the Biden presidency look from Durham, North Carolina? Uh, cold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think at our last panel, I was a little bit more hopeful or positive, optimistic. Um, I actually like Jacob's good, bad, ugly um, approach, because if I look at the comments that I have, I can kind of put them within, within that framework. So it really is nice. It's nice to be back. Um, the good, Biden's judicial nominations and um, confirmations. Uh, so far, he's gotten 42. Um, 78% have been women or are women, 21% are male, 23%, almost 24% are black, 31% are white, about 15% are Latino, 16, almost 17% are Asian American. And this, after this big stumble at the beginning where he had no Asian American nominees for his cabinet and then said he would just have this liaison um, thing and where um, um, Duckworth and uh, Hirono said that they were not going to vote for any of his nominations until he kind of corrected this. And so we see Asian Americans um, um, going on the bench. And 2.3% are uh, American Indians. 
Now, so that's good. And even more good is that he's got eight more nominees awaiting Senate confirmation, 13 who are waiting for a vote in committee, and 18 who are awaiting hearings in the Senate. That's a large number of, uh, you know, if they all get out of committee and they're going to be voted on by the Senate, that's going to be a very good record, right, for judicial nominees. I mean, he is outpacing Obama and others at this particular point in time. So that's the good. The bad, Biden's um, speech on voting rights in Atlanta on oh, was either January 11th or 12th. You know, a lot of the news media was saying, well, is that gonna convince any of the senators to, to change? That was not his intent. His audience was black voters, right? Because he had really stumbled in a lot of ways, one, by not making voting rights a priority of putting so much effort, not that Build Back Better was not um, important, but it's like they could have done two things at the same time. So his bad numbers among black Americans are um, kind of flashing, flashing signs. At this point in time, and this there's a, 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 a polling organization called HIT Strategies, which focuses on, on uh, surveying black voters, his approval rating in the December, at the end of December, 2021, among all black voters was 54%, 54%. His job approval decline was among all age groups of black voters. Black women dropped 7% from December, from November to December from, um, 84% approval to 77%. And Black voters over 50, which are the most consistent voters, dropped six points from November to December. And so there's this, and when you look specifically at the question of Black's approval of Biden's handling of voting rights, this is why he gave that speech. For those voters over 50, many of whom the elder went through the civil rights movement, there was a 36% drop of his approval rating from November, from November to December on his handling of voting rights from 76% in November down to 40% at the end of December. Black women dropped 18% from 58 to 40, and all black voters dropped 16% from 56 to 40%. So early on, it looked like his soft numbers were among voters under 50 or the younger, the younger voters. But now he's declining among all age groups of black, of black voters. So that's the bad, the ugly, is Latino voters, right? In the 2020 election, yes, Biden carried the majority of the Latino vote, but he lost votes in areas where he shouldn't have lost, like Mexican-American voters along the border in Texas who voted, 
voted Republican more so than than Democrat. So the various polling um, um, uh, polls out there show that Biden's approval rating among Latino voters, and this is of the um, Quinnipiac, I can always not pronounce that, was like 28%. 28%. 538 has his approval rating as having fallen among Latinos from 70% in February of 2021 to 50% in October. This is devastating if it stays that way because Latino voters are moving in many different directions that I think the Biden administration and some political scientists didn't identify that this was going to happen. So let me stop there with my good judicial appointments, bad cratering among black voters and the ugly Latino voters. Thank you, Paula. So this is the template, the good, the bad, <laughs> the ugly. Um, so uh, John Eikenberry, great to have you back at the LSE, um, you know, if only virtually. Um, so, so Jacob and Paula have given us really interesting takes on, on Biden's performance, especially on the, on the domestic side. Your expertise, of course, lies on the international side and you've written, um, you know, about the high hopes that folks on both sides of the pond here uh, had for, for Biden's foreign policy. I mean, where do you think things stand a year in? I mean, you can do the Joe and Lie thing and say it's too early to tell, um, you know, but and maybe it is too early to tell. I'm not sure. Um, but your thoughts. Thank you, Peter. And it's great to be here and to be on this wonderful panel. Um, I wish I had better news than the first two speakers when we come to foreign policy. It's been a, a tough year for the Biden team. And I must say, I think 2022 is going to be be even more challenging in many ways. Uh, the the inbox of of the Biden foreign policy account, I think, was full when it arrived, and it's it's actually overflowing that now. Some might say the inbox is on fire. Uh, Russia is posed on for military intervention on uh, on Ukraine's border and and contesting the post Cold War European security order. Uh, Iran uh, is continuing to break out of the nuclear deal that the Trump administration unfortunately abandoned, and it's hard to put that deal back in the box. Uh, China is increasingly autocratic and aggressive and uh, more and more assertive when it comes to Taiwan. And then now we have North Korea that is uh, blasting missiles. And, and if you think about it, the four uh, gr great enemies of the uh, uh, the, the liberal international order uh, are all kind of on a kind of upward ramping of their pressure. Um, now, 2021 did begin, I think, uh, on a very high note. And I think the Biden administration knew what it needed to do. It saw the moment. And I still do think it understands where we are in world historical time, uh, bringing the United States back to a kind of a constructive role. The very first steps were to rejoin the Paris Agreement, uh, the, the WHO and other agreements to rekindle the, the G7 like-minded club. 
Uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, looked chaotic and imp impulsive, and and that uh, was a setback, I think, uh, and is still reverberating in various ways. Um, and of course, the the spat with France uh, on the, the the submarine deal with Australia uh, it cut undercut this view of the group of of mature democracies working together to to bring back uh, a kind of progressive development to the world system. Um, so uh, there's a lot that uh, the Biden administration is having to deal with. <clears throat> a lot of it, not of its making, I think it is working very hard. It has put <clears throat> diplomacy and coalition building at the heart of its, its, its foreign policy. And in, in some sense, that's the good. That's the, the part that, that uh, we, we see and we want more of. I think the other good is there is a strategy. I think there is a grand strategy. There is a, certainly a game plan. Uh, and I think it's it's threefold. I think number one, the, the Biden administration is credibly attempting to rebuild uh, uh, political and social capital for the United States on the global stage, creating and recreating partnerships and capacities to deal with global problems. This is what they see as, as most important, reweaving together the the coalitions, alignments, coalitions, like-minded groupings, whether that works or not will really tell us what the 21st century looks like. Can this be done? Can countries that share these interests and values uh, hang together? And that's what a Biden foreign policy hinges on more than anything else. And again, it's too uh, early to tell, but that's the strategy. Uh, some people say that, that, uh, um, uh, uh, that Diplomacy is like gardening. Uh, you're always needing to tend the garden, to water, to prune, to plant. In some ways, Biden uh, sees that as true and has to, in some sense, plant an entire new garden. I mean, it really is a kind of from the roots up, trying to recreate a kind of working system uh, to deal with these problems. The second, uh, I think, uh, aspect of the Biden vision that's credible and is still going to see us through the next several years is, is focusing on on, on democracy uh, preservation and re renovation, the sense that that uh, to get that we are at a kind of FDR moment. It hasn't been since the 1930s, where when we would would wonder, does liberal democracy have another cycle of history in front of it? Uh, it's not just an international agenda; it's a domestic agenda, and they're 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 tied together in important ways. So making it making it uh, it clear to both us and the outside world that democracy in the United States and elsewhere can work, that it can deliver, that it can do things. And this is where we're all very nervous that we've got maybe three more years, two more years to kind of make that happen before this dark presence uh, waiting off stage, uh, uh, call it the, the Trump restoration comes back. So I do, I do feel like uh, we all share this sense that the stakes are very high for some modicum of of success, some threshold of success. And then thirdly, and I think the Biden administration feels that to the bone. And then thirdly, I think uh, uh, China, what, what has been a, a centering part of the, the, the Biden grand strategy is to, to focus on strategic competition with China, that this is a struggle for the world. In that sense, it is another return to to FDR, when when the stakes are are how we think about the values and and organization of the world system, it's not just uh, sort of incremental reform in front of us. We've got disjunctures uh, 
of, of great significance in front of us. So understanding that competition with China in a kind of constructive way, a kind of a progressive competition to, to see who can do better, uh, the competition that if it works the way I think Biden and company would like, it's a competition to, to see which hegemonic leader can do better to provide public goods, to, to, to get us further down the road on uh, uh, addressing climate change, pandemic response. Uh, it's across the board, a strategic or systemic rivalry that, uh, that is an echo of the past moments in, a, in American history, World War I, World War II, the Cold War, when, when it was a kind of struggle for what model works. Uh, and that can be uh, a, a dangerous game, but it also is one where uh, it, it can galvanize coalitions in ways to, to think uh, uh, to the, to the, and to look at the horizon and think about it in, in long-term ways. Uh, that uh, get us past some of the these uh, these difficulties of making deals and passing legislation. So there is a kind of significance here that I, I don't know that we anticipated a, even a year ago. But but uh, but I do think to summarize that that um, the the problems are are greater than I, I'm sure that Biden and his team appreciated when they came into office. It wasn't simply about walking back on stage. And uh, and saying we're back, uh, uh, it's now a, a much more protracted struggle, and it, it's going to take time. And the question really is, uh, do we have that time? John, thank you so much. You know, I, I'm going to want to return to the points you just made about um, China because it seems to me that Mr. Putin is making it difficult for Biden to focus the kind of attention he'd like to on 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 China. We'll circle back to that. Ursula, uh, Ursula Hackett, welcome to the LSE platform. Um, glad you could join us. So where do you come down on this question? How does Biden look, you know, from a historical perspective? I mean, one question here for that, you know, I keep thinking about is the media like really selling the guy short? I mean, Jacob pointed on the good to the economy and unemployment really has dropped significantly, even though inflation is is up. And and Paula has rightly pointed to all the judicial appointments. It's been, you know, I think that has really surprised everybody, the speed and the efficiency that the administration has, has moved at. I, where do you come down on that? So thank, thanks so much, Peter. And, and I'm just delighted to join this absolutely fabulous panel. And I'm really glad you mentioned the historical context there, because I, I think it'd be helpful for us to, to, to think a bit more about that broader context and some of the expectations we have of presidents. And I've been thinking a lot of recently about some of um, Steve Skronik's ideas about presidential leadership within political time and uh, these struggles that presidents have in terms of wrestling with their predecessors' legacies. And one of the things I think that Skronik does so nicely is to juxtapose this idea of uh, the rise of presidentialism, this idea that presidents should act independently, um, that they exert their power through bureau bureaucratic mechanisms rather than through their relations with Congress, and we have very high expectations of what they're going to do. Juxtaposing those, this sort of presidentialist 
vision with, on the other hand, the enormous challenges of getting anything done in this, uh, you know, enacting transformative change in a separated system um, and difficulty of reforming institutions um, and dislodging existing orders. And I think we see that very much with the Democrats' challenges in terms of reform of the filibuster or voting rights and so on. And so uh, I think there are particularly acute problems for this democratic administration. I wanted to just draw out three key sort of points on that on that score, one of which relates to the courts. Uh, so picking up on some of the points that Paula was making there, one of which relates to the states. And one, I think, says, more, says something a bit more generally about the, the, um, the challenges, the long term groundwork that is required to actually enact major policy change. So um, first of all, the courts. I, mean, I think we see the courts moving to counter the administration in various different ways. Of course, we've got conservative dominated court that is undermining the Biden administration's priorities on things like abortion and gun rights and church state separation and so on. Um, but I think uh, also moving against the administration to, to in more broadly, in terms of opposition to the executive branch more broadly, I think we're seeing some uh, moves afoot potentially to uh, crack down on the Chevron deference. Um, this is a, a cause of Neil Gorsuch's in particular, but I think that there's a conservative um, opposition to this sense that uh, federal agencies should be given a lot of latitude in terms of their um, uh, interpretation of the laws that they're carrying out. And so, uh, and also perhaps also um, a reimposition of non-delegation doctrine. We've been talking about this a lot recent, in recent days, another Gorsuch um, concern. Um, in which th this idea that Congress can't delegate much power to federal agencies. And I think that if the court moves in that direction, then we're going to see the undermining of the executive branch more generally, but particularly, of course, of democratic administrations that, de that require, uh, that focus so much on the sort of federal regulatory apparatus in terms of achieving their policy priorities. The second point I want to highlight is that in this at this point of time in which we have such a large degree of partisan polarization, scroticism at the federal level, a lot of the policy action moves to the states. I think we need to think very much about what's happening at the state level. Some of that, of course, is supportive of the Biden administration's priorities, others not so much. I think um, a lot of the action at the state level um, has seen sort of states moving apart in, po in policy terms. Some liberal states moving in a more liberal direction, conservative states in a more conservative di direction. We've got a very fragmented federal dynamic. Um, but what I would like to highlight is that the Republican advantages at the state level. Um, we've got they've got 30 state legislatures. There's only 17. So 3-0, right, for the Republicans, 17 for Democrats. They have the advantage also in terms of the governorships. Um, and that gives them the edge in terms of redistricting, but also in terms of policy successes as well. Whether that's talking about some of the restrictive voting bills. I mean, Jacob mentioned some of the concerns on the Republican Party side. Absolutely. 22 re restrictive voting bills passed in the first half of 2021 20, alone. Um, uh, whether that's the spread of private school choice programs, voucher programs, more than 60 of those programs across the states now. Uh, whether that's the 12 states that have pre-filed uh, Texas-style abortion restrictions model on the SB8 bill, uh, whether that's the 21 states that have, have uh, 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 banned proof of COVID vaccination as a requirement for uh, uh, accessing uh, particularly goods and services. So there's, I think there are some movements at the state level in a liberal direction on reproductive rights and environmental politics and so on. But I think that the Republican strength at the state level really presents some challenges for the Biden administration's policy priorities. And then the third point I want to highlight here is that change to all of this doesn't come 
quickly, right? The groundwork that has led to these Republican successes at the state level and in courts has been laid over a number of years. Um, and it takes time to reap the dividends of investments in those sorts of state strategies in terms of the legal uh, and legal strategies. Um, I mentioned the success of the Republicans um, at the state level, really for more than a decade. I mean, from 2010 onwards, that big shellacking, Republican uh, victories at the state level have given them a substantial degree of control over the composition of state courts. I mean, Paula draws our attention rightly to some of the successes that we've seen on the Biden administration in terms of the, 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 the diversity of the court cohorts that he is um, elevating to the courts. But we did see under the Trump administration, the elevation of 54 appeals court judges, a third of the total, the flipping of three major circuit courts to Republican majority appointed, appointed um, bodies. And of course, these three conservative justices, relatively young conservative justices to the Supreme Court that are going to come on, are going to continue to shape uh, 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 you know, the court's um, jurisprudence for many, many decades to come, not just years, but decades. So I just want to give that broader context and just to, to say, well, the, the, this rise of presidentialism, I think, has helped to raise expectations of what presidents can and should do. But presidents have always struggled to exert transformational leadership. I think that the Biden administration has had some achievements despite very strong headwinds, um, you know, conservative advantages in a malapportioned Senate, uh, uh, extremely narrow federal uh, level victories, um, the need for a supermajority for more or less any um, legislative efforts at the federal level. Um, but I think that if there's one thing I take away from this, for the, for the Biden administration, the Democratic Party more broadly, it's that those investments in the ground game at the state and local level is crucial um, in terms of shaping public policy and also in terms of legal approaches in these times of polarization and legislative challenges at the federal level. And I think that those payoffs can't come immediately. They're certainly not gonna save the Democrats from the midterms. Um, this is a long game. That's great to have that perspective, that historical perspective and, and to bring in the Republican strategy of going local, going to the state level, and how it's really paid dividends for them um, over time. Um, Mark, um, I know the New York Times has you on high Boris Johnson alert, um, but I'm glad you could be here this evening uh, to talk about Joe Biden. I'm especially keen to get your reflections on Biden's foreign policy performance Biden, as John mentioned, says America's back. Mr. Putin seems to be testing that proposition. How do things look from your London perch? Uh, well, Peter, first of all, thank you for having me back. Uh, and I, I think um, the news gods are cooperating and uh, <laughs> this uh, long awaited report on Boris Johnson's garden parties, I don't think will drop while we're having this Zoom call. Although I gather it may drop in the next day or so. Um, but uh, I, I, I thought I would just reflect a little back to what I said a year ago here. Uh, and, um, and since I'm the only non-academic, I think on this panel, I'll approach things much more from uh, the perspective of a, of a news person. And uh, so not just what are the grand trends, but also what are the successes and shortcomings of the White House's um, effort to, to frankly get credit for some of the things that are going well. Um, and so, I mean, the first thing I know I said last year was that <clears throat> there was this, you know, euphoria uh, in um, many foreign capitals when, uh, when Trump lost and Biden was elected. And I think that instantly put a completely 
uh, unrealistic set of expectations on what this new president would do. And so it's not really a surprise that in the first year, uh, he's let some people down because, I mean, after all, the U.S. was going to let people down anyway for reasons that have much more to do with whoever the current occupant of the White House is. Um, The United States just isn't equipped or particularly interested in playing the kind of role internationally that it did for many decades. Uh, And in that regard, uh, the inevitable headlines said that, well, the Biden foreign policy doesn't really look all that different than the Trump foreign policy. I disagree with that. I think that's facile. I think there are huge differences, which John went over a little while ago, having to do with uh, a return to multilateral diplomacy, consulting allies. Um, but it is also true to say that the U.S. is simply a more inward looking country, less interested in the kind of obligations that it undertook uh, for much of the post-war period. And uh, and that would have happened regardless of who the occupant of the White House was. So there is a great you know, deal of disappointment. And, and as a couple of the other panelists said, fear that we might just be um, marking time till a Trump restoration. Um, I think that one of the things that I thought I would talk a bit about uh, as I covered Joe Biden as a White House correspondent when he was vice president is to talk a little bit about Biden himself and what kind of a president he has become. Um, This is a guy who came in with arguably more experience uh, than almost any predecessor uh, for quite some time, and particularly a huge amount of experience in foreign policy. Yet I think that helps explain some of the missteps that have happened along the way. Um, I have a theory that that Joe Biden's views on Afghanistan were so well set and deeply entrenched that they may have actually contributed to some of the mishandling of our, our withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, if you recall going back to the Obama administration, Biden was the lonely voice in the room saying we needed to get out of Afghanistan. There was really no argument for a continuing presence. He lost that debate, but never gave up those views. And when he came back as commander in chief last year, he was determined to frankly deliver on what he wanted to do 10 years earlier. Uh, And I think in doing so, he probably didn't listen as much to some of the warnings he got from either his military advisors or his foreign policy team. And, uh, And I think that may have contributed to some of the abruptness uh, and messiness of the U.S. withdrawal. Um, I think likewise on China uh, and on Russia, remember this is a president whose views are fixed, longstanding, uh, and and in some areas, I think that's an advantage. Perhaps it is an advantage in uh, dealing with Putin and Ukraine. Uh, We have a president who knows Putin well, uh, and who has also been through the exercise of marshalling allies. Uh, And I think he is actually doing that quite effectively uh, in the UK. Ukraine crisis. I think this phone call he had with European leaders yesterday at the White House was an interesting uh, and perhaps important moment. Uh, And I think that, you know, regardless of criticism he's getting from the right in Washington, I think he's actually showing a fairly sure-footed approach to a very difficult issue. Um, I think with China, he came in with this extremely robust, uh, as John was saying earlier, 
this idea of a long-term strategic competition, it clearly left some of the Europeans, particularly the Germans, feeling uncomfortable. I think rhetorically, he's dialed it down a little bit, um, but I think it really does still form the core of a very interesting China policy. We'll have to see how it plays out. I think the final thing I would say on Biden is in the realm of communications as opposed to policy. Um, to someone, I think it might've been you earlier said, is the news media selling him short on the things he's done well? Maybe, I think it's possible we are. Um, I think that some of it may have to do with the way Biden has communicated so far. Um, and I think the White House is well aware of this and is beginning to address it. Biden came in as a Washington deal maker. A lot of his emphasis was his relationships on the Hill. He invested an enormous amount of time in people like Joe Manchin uh, and Kristen Sinema and trying to forge these deals. Um, he spent a lot less time barnstorming around the country and using the bully pulpit. Um, I think the White House now recognizes that with some of the problems they've had with the better Build Back Better legislation and the fact that people like Joe Manchin look like they're really not budging, um, that they're going to de-emphasize that a little bit. They're going to take him out on the road a lot more. Um, and I actually think that that may be a payoff for them. I mean, one thing, uh, whatever else you think about Donald Trump, uh, he really did know how to uh, fill the space, how to fill a vacuum, how to use every single lever of presidential power, including social media, in ways that hadn't been used before. And he really dominated the dialogue. Biden hasn't done that. The dialogue has been dominated by a number of other players and factors, partly because he's chosen to play the communications game differently. I wonder whether we're going to see a shift in that now and whether we're going to see a Biden who is traveling out in the country more and spending a little less time going to congressional caucus meetings on Capitol Hill. And so, uh, you know, while I agree that the inbox is bursting and it's going to be a rough year, a president who's on the front foot in communications uh, might be able to uh, score some victories. Right. Thank you. Um... Mark, and, and yes, welcome back too. You were with us last year. Um, so, um, you know, we're gonna open things up to uh, questions. I can see there's already about 30 questions uh, in the Q and A. Um, and I'm gonna try to get in a, a number of these. There's a, a number of them are overlapping questions and I'm gonna try to pull out some of the themes. Um, before I do, I just want to welcome folks who are joining us from um, around the world. You're on the LSE platform. There are folks here from Turkey, Lithuania, Latvia, France, the US and the UK, of course, Slovakia, China, Germany, New Zealand, India, Norway, South Korea, and South Africa. I hope I haven't left anybody out, but that's, a, that's pretty good. Um, so there are um, a number, of, so there are a bunch of questions about foreign policy. There are also many questions about the midterms and about the Republican Party. Um, and one of the questions that uh, has to do, uh, and the media, um, one of the questions, um, it comes from Karen Bergen, who's an LSE alum who's based in uh, San Diego. And she says, why does it, it, it's a straightforward question. Why does it feel like the Republicans are still in control of the political agenda in DC? Um, not only of that, that, but also 
of the national dialogue in general. Liberals are getting smashed as out of touch, hyper-woke elitist. Why can't Democrats get out from under this branding by Republicans? So just a question about strategy. And I think in a way this, you know, maybe um, it picks up on some of the things that you mentioned, uh, Ursula, but it also, Jacob, it reminds me of, you know, I, I know you have this new book out, edited volume in American political economy that does focus on the role of kind of the media and how issues are framed among many other issues. Um, that would be one thing to, to pick up. On the, on the foreign policy side, um, there are just a bunch of questions that are coming in about the Ukraine. And so we might as well just take it up front. Um, and I, I'm, I'm looking for, there's one in particular, um, Josh Turner. Do you think Biden is a strong enough president to effectively navigate the situation with Russia and Ukraine? Mike Pompeo yesterday, I think it was yesterday, on Sunday, um, on the Sunday talk shows, said that this is precisely the problem, that Biden is too weak, that the Democrats are too weak, and that what Putin is doing is taking advantage of that in the United States. This is an interpretation that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you can hear it now increasingly on the Republican side, but not all Republicans. If you listen to Tucker Carlson, that's not the nature of the problem. The nature of the problem that some Republicans are, are advancing is that the Ukraine doesn't matter to the United States. It shouldn't be involved in any way, shape, or form there. I'm wondering, kind of, Mark and John, if you could say a few words about the situation there and how it's unfolding and, and whether, you know, Putin is miscalculated and what he might get is uh, finally give NATO um, uh, a purpose um, that kind of mobilize support um, uh, here in, in Europe. And then one last question that we can put on the table here is um, from, um, that has to do with Kamala Harris. So we, nobody has talked about Kamala Harris. And um, could her role, could it be stepped up in order on the messaging front for her to play a larger role? Um, I think people were expecting, just to pick up and flesh out this question, for her to be playing a much larger role in moving either some legislation forward, um, you know, or um, uh, picking up the issue of uh, police reform, um, and I think that there's a, a sense that she's she's not at, been as out front and assertive. And so I think this question picks that up. So some thoughts about that, three different questions. Um, who wants to start? Um, how about we start with a foreign policy one? Mark and John. Mark, go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll go first and then I'll turn to John. Um, I, I, I think that, um, uh, that, look, it's easy to say uh, Putin's taking advantage of the U.S. and the weakness of the president. Well, he's, of course he is. He's also trying to divide the U.S. from its allies. He's trying to divide Europe internally. 
Um, and he, and it's been ever thus. He's been doing this for more than a decade uh, with quite some success. Um, uh, I think that, but I think that to be fair to Biden, um, with the exception of one or two missteps, and 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 one obvious misstep was uh, a week or so ago when he, you know, committed what Michael Kinsley used to call, um, you know, a gaffe, which was uh, the Washington definition for a gaffe, which is inadvertently telling the truth. Uh, when he said that people would respond uh, differently if it was a minor incursion than if it was a full-scale invasion. Of course, that's true. He shouldn't have said it. Um, but but I think that, you know, that in general, if you look at the way the U.S. has handled uh, Ukraine, um, and particularly in the last few days, I think that, that Biden hasn't done a bad job of dealing with a situation where there are some very important built-in limitations, the most important of which is we are not deploying combat troops to defend Ukraine, and neither are the Western Europeans. Um, Ukraine is not a core strategic objective of the United States uh, the way it is for Germany, for example. Um, and yet it's important for us because it exemplifies our commitment to democratic values. And so I think that that Biden has actually walked that line uh, as well as can be expected. Uh, and I think that, you know, the other thing to remember is that it's not as though he's got a great set of partners for this difficult journey. If you look at Europe right now, uh, you have a German government that is divided among itself with three different members of a coalition, all of whom feel slightly differently about Russia, a French president who's running for re-election and determined to show his independence, and a British prime minister who may or may not have a job in 10 days, and even if does is more eager to make the case for a post-Brexit foreign policy than he is for just being uh, a wingman to the United States. So I think Biden's got a very difficult set of players here, uh, and he's got, um, you know, the all-time provocateur of foreign policy, Vladimir Putin. And even given that very difficult set of factors, I think he's he's manage, managing it relatively well. And I think it was worthwhile for you to point out that um, this is not a case where there's a sort of a unified right-wing opinion. There's kind of traditional right-wing opinion, which is that he's weak and an appeaser. And then there's Tucker Carlson right-wing, which actually probably aligns with some crazy far left, uh, which is that Russia deserves to have a sphere of influence and who are we to tell them not to. Um, so I guess I'm not as down on him. I think that um, it's been a very rough uh, set of issues and I think he's dealt with it reasonably well. I, I'll just echo that. I, I think uh, he's he's playing it right down the middle, and uh, it's a very uh, difficult position not to be too provocative on the 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 response side, but not to 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 lay back too too far. I mean, there are principles that we care deeply about. I mean, this is Ukraine uh, has drifted to the West. It it looks at Poland, which unlike Ukraine did join the EU, and now. With uh, at a starting point at the end of the Cold War with similar uh, uh, GDPs, uh, Poland's uh, per capita GMP is, uh, uh, is is far higher than Ukraine. The, Ukraine sees that uh, that that, that its future is in that direction, and that 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 is frightening to Putin. Uh, and so uh, I think Biden's um, overall kind of approach to 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 how to think about the grand narrative of the world fits with 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 Biden and, and didn't fit with Trump. Trump wanted to cut deals and 
And, uh, and uh, indeed, many of these uh, Republicans who are now criticizing Biden for being too weak on Putin, uh, where were they when, uh, when, when uh, uh, Trump was doing his appeasement tour of Moscow? So I, I think that uh, th that's, that's interesting. And I think that the other thing I would say about Biden uh, is that he does have these, uh, these very interesting uh, European partners. And, and I think he's played a very nice role. And, and I must say, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, has, 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 has shown us a kind of the high art of diplomacy. There have been, I think, 100 uh, uh, diplomatic encounters across the, these European states and, and transatlantic uh, partnerships. Uh, and you see, you see it uh, keeping the, 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 the group together. Uh, uh, Blinken has talked about a, uh, he's used the term transatlantic quad. And I find that interesting because I do think that suggests a, a kind of architectural kind of uh, uh, innovation for thinking about how the US and these key European states might operate in the context of Russia and Ukraine, but more broadly, a kind of mirror of what you see in East Asia with the Quad. So, uh, so uh, I think uh, um, Biden uh, gets good marks uh, on on what we're seeing in front of us now, and we can only hope that uh, diplomacy uh, stays stays in play for the next next while, because it's going to be very very. Uh, these are high high risk calculations on all sides. That's great. That's very, very useful, helpful. Um, and I think there are so many questions on this particular issue. I think that is very helpful for people. Um, if we could switch back to the other, the other question about um, Republicans controlling the agenda and the airwaves, really kind of framing the debate. Um, uh, perhaps, Jacob, could we start with you? Sure. I'll try to be brief, although I have been thinking a lot uh, with my co-author, Paul Pearson, about the evolution of the Republican Party over the last generation. And so um, it's hard for me to be brief about this. But at his, um, at his press conference, um, Biden said he was surprised by the deaths of the Republican resistance. And that was the least surprising thing that has ever happened in American politics. And, and clearly, the Biden team understood well that they weren't going to get any real buy-in for anything that he was doing on Capitol Hill. And they acted as if they weren't going to. The whole strategy was do big budget bills that are not subject to the filibuster and then uh, and try to get stuff in them that um, pushes the boundaries like immigration and then um, try to carve out some exception on the filibuster so they don't have to get 60 votes um, for voting rights. So, I mean, their, their strategy was based on an understanding of, of how the Republicans would behave in Capitol Hill, which was completely not surprising. I think perhaps surprising or at least notable is the extent to which the 2020 big lie became the organizing fulcrum of the Republican Party in the wake of the 2020 uh, loss of Donald Trump. And, you know, I mean, there was a little bit of talk, you know, right, especially after the January 6th um, insurrection, that there would be um, you know, some rethinking within the Republican Party. And, and there was some rethinking and the thinking came was really about how we can purge the people who were um, who, who responded in the right way um, with outrage and horror to January 6th. So that is, I think, and then as Ursula said, this Im immediately went down to the state level um, where Republicans enjoy 
significant advantages and and the wave of voting rights uh, restrict the voting restrictions, but even more frightening the wave of changes in voting laws that will allow Republicans to override voters um, if they don't elect Republicans. Th those are just that's a huge development. And so I'll say just two things about this. Um, one is that um, let's just not forget how structurally biased the American system is uh, against the party that uh, we have a deeply two party system and we're structurally biased against the party that has a strong base in metro areas. And the parties didn't cleave on this urban rural divide in the past. They do now. That's an obvious point, but we can't forget it. It means that Republicans have essentially failed to win a majority in Senate elections of majority of voters, but they've of course held the Senate majority for much of the last 20 years. Um, it means that the Electoral College is tilted towards Republicans. If they're gonna be contested Electoral College results, they're gonna go to the Republican party. And, um, and then of course it means that the gerrymandering is much easier to do if you're a Republican because you've got all these Democrats crammed into urban areas. So, and that's by the way, much more actively done at the state level, which helps explain the state dominance that Ursula was talking about. So why, why do I want to emphasize that? Because, you know, there is a huge structural element to the story that really put the, you know, the Democrats in a very significant bind. And they were just very fortunate in some ways to get in the position where they had any chance of success. And this doesn't diminish, you know, Biden's leadership role. And I want to talk more about that, but I really think we should understand that, that context. And, 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 the one thing that was mentioned in the question that I haven't touched on and I just want to close with is I do think right wing media is, and social media in general is much more important than I think political scientists have, at least until recently, uh, acknowledged. Um, there's a new study that's coming out by a colleague of mine and uh, another political scientist that shows that if you give Fox News watchers incentives to watch CNN instead and a random experiment, um, and this was during the pandemic, that they don't change their partisanship, but they change their views of reality. They basically are more concerned about the pandemic. They're less likely to think they were less likely to think Donald Trump was doing a good job. And that's what the right wing media is doing. It's not necessarily telling people how to think, though it does some of that. It's telling them what to think about. And so if you have a significant chunk of voters who are responding to that and another chunk of voters who haven't who are very, very dissatisfied with what they think is happening in D.C., as Paula was saying, Right, you've got this kind of latent dissatisfaction. And in our system, the midterm elections are basically like the time to, to press the mad as hell button. And that's always in a two party system gonna be the party that's outside the White House, it's gonna get hurt. So again, structural realities that we should just take very seriously before we start um, going into the specifics of, 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 of policy choices or strategies for legislative um, uh, maneuvering or judicial nominations or whatever. Ursula, Paula, thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I would just echo everything that Jacob's just said, but just to add one more thing that relates to this question about dialogue and this sort of sense of who controls the dialogue. I and mean, I think that there's a sort of supply side and a demand side here, you know. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there's a question here about the receptivity of audiences to some of these messages from, from, from uh, the Democratic Party and the Liberals more generally. Um, in a period of time where we've got this substantial degree of affective polarization, a lack of a shared political reality, frankly, uh, between these different sides. And 
Um, but also tough times. I mean, when when um, Republicans still have the advantage um, on the top issue that people really care about, that's the economy. And, and so there's sort of there's a question about receptivity, I think, and demand side. But I think there's also a question about supply side. Um, and I think that one of the things that has really marked out some of the Republican organizing over the last you know decade and a half is really the the, the coordination between various organizations that are that are that are coordinating on their message that are that they have money, they, but they're investing also in the ground game in terms of the in terms of the grassroots as well. So I think it's a, it's a quite a joined up effort um, that I think helps to make that message punch through. Paula? I'm not sure I can add much more, but something that popped into my mind, and I don't know anybody who's studying this, is when we look at the uh, data, even though Obama, um, Biden's uh, approval rating is sliding, I wonder how many communities of color actually watch right-wing media. I mean, are they more likely to have a more realistic view of what's going on because they're not in that echo chamber? I mean, I don't do media, I don't do media, but that seems to me to be an important question as to where in fact there might be this, this, this hope maybe, you know, that certain parts of the community of the states will not be affected by this right-wing echo chamber, but I haven't seen anybody that studied that, so. I'm gonna take another round of uh, questions here. Um, this one is from um, David. Oh, can uh, we do the Kamala Harris? There is the Kamala Oh, yes, I'm sorry, right. The Kamala Harris one. Yeah, because yes. I think that's, you know, I think that's very important. And I think there's, you know, uh, Jacob talks about structure, right? Mm -hmm. But first, first woman vice president, right? First person of color, and then the intersection of the first, you know, woman of color vice president, but she's vice president, right? And so it's almost like if you look back to the early work on black mayors that everybody kind of expected you elect a black mayor of a city and all of a something, you know, sudden things were gonna change, things were gonna get better. She's the vice president. She is constrained by what Biden wants her to do and how he wants her to behave. Now, I think in terms of how Obama gave Biden a lot of kind of leeway, he gave him these things that were high profile. Biden has given her immigration, the border and voting rights, but Obama, and I mean, Biden has decided, like Mark said, that he wants to play this inside game, right? I was you know, a creature of the Senate. I know how to negotiate. So if that's his strategy, is she then supposed to get on the road and do something different? You know, so I think um, some of the criticism of her is unfair, but there is some criticism I think that she rightly deserves. And that's the structure of her office, right? It mirrors how she structured her campaign and how the campaign was actually a disaster, right? She didn't get any traction. It was the internal thing. And so her office still seems to have the same kind of dynamics as her campaign had. And that is something I think she can control and get a handle on. I mean, the fact that her media person, Simone Sanders, left, I mean, who was a very skilled you know, person. So I think it's one, the structure that constrains her, 
but two, she's got to get her own office home in order to be able to message in a way that is more positive for her. Um, so let me turn uh, to uh, actually one question that is going to pick up just where you left off in a way, Paul. Um, this question comes from uh, Harry Davies, who's a sixth form student. So we've got all kinds of folks here. And this is actually, he's thinking about the future. What seems likely to be Biden's succession plan? So Democrats were blindsided by Hillary Clinton's 2016 law. So will Biden look to someone less establishment seeming to replace him when he steps down? And I, I think just to flesh this out a little bit, he's no spring chicken. And there is like a question here about, you know, whether he stands for re-election and whether he should and whether, you know, it should be passed either to Harris or to somebody younger. So I think it's a question about just the composition of the Democratic Party and who potentially is in the wings and so forth. A question that comes from Aaron Badway at Johns Hopkins. Um, so the question here is with respect to democracy reform and voting rights, why are the Democrats not trying to work with moderate Republicans on scaled down legislation to address absolutely critical reforms? And I, I, he hasn't put it there, but you know, I will. There's a possibility of an agreement, a bipartisan agreement on the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Um, and there are a lot of people who think, you know, that the Republicans are engaged in subterfuge to like push this as opposed to voting rights and so forth. But this is a big issue. And there's a lot of gray area in the existing act, as we saw last January 6th and or perhaps even in the run-up to it. And so I guess the question here is some thoughts about the possibility, even for whether it for some bipartisan cooperation on this particular issue that probably serves both parties' interests to lock this in. Or maybe that's a question. Um, and then the third question is from, um, and I've just lost it. Um, Pascal uh, Dubois, do you expect that Biden will continue to strive for multilateralism or will attempt to act more unilaterally going forward? And I think maybe this could also, um, you know, be framed, um, uh, I'm thinking John and, and Mark in terms of the extent to which he's likely to invest more on the foreign policy side. I mean, assuming the midterms go the way they go. You know, it's often said that presidents focus on domestic policy the first term, and then the second term they focus on, on foreign policy. He may not have that much time. <laughs> and, and so the kind of question about, you know, I, I mean, a lot of this is generated by events, but to the extent that a president can control the agenda, some thoughts about that. So um, let's start with um, 
Maybe the reform question. Does somebody want to pick that up in the Electoral Count Act? Just the possibility of reform? Let, let me just say that um, I think that the strategy that the, the Democrats have pursued on uh, democracy reform, because it's more than just voting rights, of course, they also would like to um, to um, limit the ability of, of extreme partisan of Republicans to use extreme partisan gerrymandering uh, at the state level, for example. Um, the strategy has been very similar to the strategy on Build Back Better. They didn't want to carve out an infrastructure bill um, that would attract moderate Republican support. The Dem more progressive Democrats were fearful that it would mean that the entire effort would fail, um, or the the other provisions in Build Back Better would would fail. And so far. Um, their fears seem like they might not have been completely unwarranted. So I think that it's hard for Democrats who see a huge range of problems, many of which um, I think are genuinely, genuinely threats to big, you know, small d democracy, not just big D Democrats. Um, it's very hard for them to think about what would be a, like a, 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 a highly slimmed down version. Um, but I think, I think if you could couple if you could couple um, change in the Electoral Count Act with um, with uh, some kind of, uh, of measures to prevent also um, partisan appointees making the final decision at the state level, it would probably be it would be well worth the effort. I just question whether you really could get um, ten Republicans on board. So, I mean, I really I go back to the structural reality, right? The, the filibuster is. Um, it really accentuates the small state bias of the of the Senate, and therefore the Republican bias of the Senate. And um, the the thought of getting ten right Republicans on board um, for anything more than symbolic changes, given that they feel very advantaged going into the midterm, it's, at least at this point, um, we can debate whether it would have been possible to do something with the threat of a more ambitious um, bill hanging over the heads of the senators um, at this point seems very just seems very a distant possibility. Um, I go back to I think Ursula put it best, and she said, you know, this really has to happen at the ground level now, um, and um, and that's not something that the Democrats want to hear because they clearly do need federal reforms. But that's that's really where the the leverage is going to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just add to that. I mean, I think that there's there's a there's a question here about. Um, so the question is about why Democrats aren't trying to work with Republic, moderate Republicans on these, some of these issues. I mean, I think there's a question of the appetite uh, on the part of Democrats for doing this, but also their assessment of the likelihood of success. And I would say that yeah, they, they don't see a very um, uh, clear pathway to success. Um, uh, and I mean, and one thing we know about how Congress works, of course, is that the, the, the opportunities, there are opportunities from time to time for bipartisan cooperation on some of these issues, but but it, it it's very, very difficult. And if you do that, you have to really bring on a whole load of the other side on board. Um, you can't just pick them off one by one because you don't have that middle ground that we, we that there was back, you know, 40, 50 years ago or whatever. Um, but I think also there's a question here about the appetite on the behalf of part of Democrats for engaging in these sorts of solutions, policy solutions. And I think there's a concern, certainly on the left flank, that this is a this is a capitulation, that this is a halfway house, that this is a in some way a, a you know, a, a, you know, it, it's a um gonna prevent the broader, more comprehensive reform that is actually that they seem to, that they see is required. So I think there's a that there's a dispute there within the Democratic Party itself about the extent of these 
um, uh, these uh, possible policy solutions. John, uh, do you want to talk? Uh, I, I do want to switch to foreign policy, but maybe, Paul, are you on, on this point? Do you want to? I also put that question out there about Biden's successor. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about Biden's successor. I guess I've been thinking about, um, you know, Jacob mentioned like the coupling of the Build Back Better and the infrastructure. And they've done that on voting rights with the Freedom to Act vote and the John Lewis voting rights, you know. But there are things in the John Lewis bill that might, and I'm just saying slight might, because they rolled into the John Lewis voting rights voting advancement, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, they rolled into it a piece of legislation called the Native American Rights Voter Rights Act of 2021, which was a piece of legislation that was introduced on a bipartisan um, um, basis with Tom Cole uh, from Oklahoma. And when you think about, you know, the states that have the largest proportion of native voters are Alaska, and native voters have been important for Lisa Murkowski when she won as a write-in, a write-in voter. I mean, as a write-in candidate before, and now, now she's up. I mean, maybe she's amenable. She does sit on the Indian Affairs um, Committee. Um, Tester, who's a Democrat, but Montana is one of those states that has introduced you know, so much voter suppression legislation that Tester really, his wins have been with American Indian voters in Montana. So I'm just wondering if there is an opening for moderate Republicans to kind of see some aspect of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act as being in their interest so that's but, interesting. The log roll would be at the national level, is essentially what you're suggesting, right? Yeah. 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 Um, we're going to switch now to foreign policy. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Just two, two things. I'll take a few seconds. So one is, um, I think if McConnell, McConnell switched on infrastructure, he basically was the reason that a lot of Republicans went along. If he were willing, if he wanted to pass something smaller, it would happen, I think. And but it's, I don't see he has much interest in doing so. But I agree with Paula that like this isn't a question of ideological alignments. It's a lot of it has to do with strategy of the party. And so if McConnell basically said, you guys have you can you can actually be sincere then I think they, they would, there would be other things that could be passed. And then on succession, two thirds of incumbent presidents get reelected. If Joe Biden can run again, <laughs> he will run again. Um, there's a lot better chance of him getting reelected than there is of him holding on to Congress in the midterm. And um, the succession plan may well be, uh, uh, I'm certain that if uh, that Harris will be his vice presidential um, uh, will be the vice presidential candidate. The discussion plan may well be that Joe Biden can't finish out a second term if he indeed um, is reelected. I can't remember what the foreign policy question is, John, but hopefully- Well, there, there are a couple of things uh, and, <laughs> and, and Mark might be able to remember better than I can, but one was on uh, you know unilateralism, multilateralism. Yes, and I, right. I would just say that my feeling is that the 
the the Biden administration does have a kind of philosophical view about the importance of of creating these kind of architectures of of multilateralism or at least many lateralism among uh, like-minded states in different issue areas, starting with Europe on certain issues, East Asia on other issues. It's partly an assessment of America's power position. It's not what it used to be. Uh, uh, there is a there's a demand for American leadership out there that maybe some of us didn't appreciate a few years ago. There's a real sense that people want want the U.S. to be out there providing public goods and and bringing people together. Uh, a lot of these regions are divided and need a kind of third party uh, um, uh, catalyst in many ways. Uh, uh, and secondly, because of the issues themselves, the, the competition that we're, we're entering into is, is not so much military competition, it's, it's plat technological platforms, it's next generation uh, technologies, it's protocols, it's regulations, it's first mover advantage, uh, um, network externalities. So getting a large critical mass of states agreeing on a particular standard uh, 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 in the face of China, that it really matters. So if, if Europe plays ball with the United States, starting with Germany, then I think the US will it certainly wants that. It's, it thinks that it can only succeed on China multilaterally and it needs Europe. And um, so, so I, I think it would, the US would be more unilateral if it couldn't get what it wants from Europe. And it really is a, uh, we will wait and see. I think there are mixed views. I think a Kurt Campbell would say, we've, Europe is evolving in how it thinks about uh, 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 China in the 21st century. Uh, so that's, that's the one question. The other question was, was about um, uh, uh, the kind of the, the foreign policy going forward in the context of domestic politics. And, and yeah. it is really interesting that the two great kind of hot issues that could truly create geopolitical conflict with, with great powers are Ukraine and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And both those countries have interesting domestic connections that, that run to Congress and run across both parties. There are, there are Republicans in Congress that care deeply about uh, Ukraine. There are networks, there are democracy uh, assistance programs uh, from the center right of American politics. Uh, uh, and so too with, uh, with Taiwan, which has a, a kind of very tight connection with, with, uh, with, with center right American politics. And so it could well be that, that Biden could take advantage of the fact that he could get, uh, a, a, not bipartisan fully, but, but larger coalitions for a foreign policy that ironically was was conducted in the face of of more headwinds from China and Russia, uh, a, a kind of not necessarily Cold War coalition coming back into formation, but but um, a sense of of, of a, a new kind of uh, internationalism that that is not tied to one party or the other. Um, so uh, uh, that that's something that I would look look to as a possibility. And, and, and I guess I would leave a question mark here to my colleagues. Uh, this division within the Republican Party and on the right about how to think about Russia, that, that's very interesting. What is the, you know, Pompeo sort of wanted to have it both ways to, yeah. to uh, so is there, uh, what, what, will, what will be the 2024 Republican foreign policy view? Is it America first or is it we need America back in this broader sense? 
So uh, that will make a difference uh, for, for Biden. Mark, I want to get your thoughts on this too. I mean, in a way, John, what you just where you ended up there, it's almost as if Biden could use these issues as wedge issues against the Republican Party because they're internally divided over these questions about wh whether you should be strong and push back over the Ukraine or it's not our it's not our problem, you know, and that that's not our theater. To go back to the point that you know I think Mark made earlier. Mark, thoughts on this? Well, it's it's interesting because it it almost loops all the way back and links to the success succession question you posed earlier. Except uh, in the other party, not the Democratic Party. Um, I'm not sure the Republicans will be able to resolve that contradiction as long as a certain person is sitting in Palm Beach, Florida, not deciding whether he's going to run for president in 2024. Um, so I do think that's going to be a very interesting drama to play to watch play out. I mean, just on on Biden in succession, I, I agree 100 percent with what Jacob said. Um, I actually think this is one of these um, sort of phony discussions that we're going to have for the next two years over, you know, what it, when is Joe Biden going to let us know he's not running for reelection? First of all, even if he isn't running for reelection, he's not going to let us know till the last possible moment because he's not going to lame duck him himself. Um, and by the way, I, that's a problem for the Democrats either way. Um, if he doesn't end up running, but holds out, uh, he'll freeze the field and leave a potentially um, not quite ready for prime time vice president as the only plausible successor. Um, or, uh, you know, if, if he runs again and then doesn't complete his term, it, in either case, it makes the development of the next generation of sort of presidential leadership somewhat more complicated on the Democratic side. And in that regard, an interesting parallel to what's going on on the Republican side, because they have the same problem, except even more acute. Um, none of them can kind of do the necessary uh, development of their public uh, profiles or fundraising or campaign organization organizations without uh, potentially offending the kingmaker. Um, I mean, I, I think on Biden on foreign policy, I just would make one very small observation um, because I feel like it's gotten slightly short shrifted in this panel. Um, climate change um, is potentially for any president in this environment, the greatest legacy. Um, and, you know, Joe Biden came in and he named John Kerry as his climate change envoy, which was a very good sign of his ambition. He rejoined Paris uh, almost immediately. Um, and then he went to Glasgow uh, to COP26 uh, and, and was sort of hamstrung um, by his inability to deliver uh, much, if anything, on the global stage because of his legislative problems back home. So I do think that um, if, if sort of the game plan after a setback in the midterms is to focus more on his international legacy, it, it doesn't relieve him of the burden of getting some reasonable, plausible climate change legislation through, whether it's hived off from Build Back Better as a separate smaller bill, and he somehow convinces Joe Manchin to go along with it. Um, he's got to do that. Or I think on this issue that for young voters in particular is, is really the um, iconic issue, uh, he will be judged to have been a big disappointment. And I think he probably knows that. I think John Kerry whispers it in his ear every week. And so I think that's going to be a big focus for the second half of the first term. 
Well, you know, but it, it's uh, this is an excellent point, but it seems to me he's got to, he actually has to get it this year. You yeah, know, that's right. Because if not this yeah. year, then all bets are off. Right. He won't I get mean, it at all in a Republican House and Senate. Right. That's going right. to be too damn hard. So he's going to be forced. This is going to be a problem for the Democratic Party because you've got climate and then you've got this raft of social issues, social policy issues that are part of Build Back Better. And he's not going to, he, he may get one or the other. He's, he's got to break them apart. I think right. is what you're suggesting there. Yeah. So we're we've only got a, a few minutes left here, um, and um, you know I'm going to just put a, very quickly a few things out on the table and then give everybody an opportunity to just close it out. Uh, Ellie Metzstein, who's another sixth form student, um, asked, "Do you think there's anything that Biden could do in the next three years that could possibly stop?" 2020 Trump voters from voting against him that actually vote for a Democrat? Where should they place their bet if they want to get back, pull back blue collar voters, for example, or to deal with some of those Latino and Black voters that you mentioned, Paula, who are peeling off from the Democratic Party? Um, and then um, just lastly, if, um, you know, one thing we have not talked about here at all, um, I don't think it's really come up. And it seems to me it's kind of, uh, this could be a story before the midterms, is what should we expect from the House January 6th committee? I mean, this is flying below the radar, I think, right now for most people in the United States. And I wonder if that's not about to change. Um, you know, now that they have access to Trump's papers, the Supreme Court has come down in a significant way there. Trump's family is being subpoenaed and it's starting to look more and more like the uprising was orchestrated by members of the administration or people that were close to affiliates of Trump. I mean, this could potentially, could it change the complexion of the midterm elections? I'm going to start, we're going to go in reverse order. So Mark is going to take the first bite at the apple. Everybody gets one minute. Mark. Um, I'll even make it less than one minute. Um, <clears throat> I'll address the first thing you asked. Like what could convince 2020 voters to, to uh, not vote again for Trump? And I'm not going to talk about um, Latino or, or people of color. I'm going to talk about women. Um, I, I do think there's at least a... Uh, you know, reasonable chance that um, Roe versus Wade uh, will be gutted by the Supreme Court in the coming months. And um, I, I do think a very interesting issue to watch is how that plays out, obviously, in, in the context of the, of the midterms, uh, but even beyond that, and whether, um, you know, women did abandon Trump in substantial numbers, suburban women, uh, and it was one of the differences in 2020 to Biden's victory. Um, and so I do think that if uh, the Democrats suddenly have abortion as a centerpiece burning social issue, uh, that has all kinds of interesting implications for the for the women's vote. And Great I'll point. stop on that. Great point. Uh, let's see. In reverse order, it's Ursula. 
<laughs> Great, thanks. I'll try and be quick. I mean, I just take the point about uh, uh, the engage, engaging voters of color. I mean, I think that it's really, you know, one thing I think could have emphasized even more today in our conversations is just how the failure of some of these efforts on immigration, on voting rights, and on um, the sort of big, the, the, the broader Build Back Better agenda is really particularly consequential for low, low income voters and, and voters of color as well. And so I think the lack of um, substantive legislative achievements um, uh, so far um, on some of these issues, I think that that really is consequential in terms of um, engagement with these um, communities of colour. Um, and I think that the Biden administration has tried to do various symbolic things. Certainly they've been speaking it, it, it very, very powerfully about racial equity and commission, commissions and executive orders and so on, speech making, but that can only go so far. And I think it does have to just come back to this, the longer term perspective, because I think that a lot of these things, these things don't just happen in a moment, I think it has to be, how do we invest for the future um, in a way that will help to build up, as Mark was mentioning, um, sort of, you know, development of the next generation of leadership. I think that has to, it's not just about presidential leadership, but about leadership within the Democratic Party more, more broadly. And I think that has to be where the conversation is in terms of engaging some of these uh, communities. John, well, I'm getting emails from people saying, this is a fantastic event. <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, I look at from America to the outside, but when I look into America, I you know there's so much to worry about. But I, I, I do think that that what Biden has going for him is that he and his party are you know, truly interested in putting out ideas about how to uh, to uh, promote uh, human well-being, uh, you know, across across the country and and beyond and. The, the Build Back Better program, if you were to disaggregate it into particular uh, programs, are, are really quite popular, and they are they do speak to 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 uh, to questions of inequality, to uh, to to the stagnation of the the lower uh, echelons of American society that are are incredibly thirsty for. Uh, for a, you know, for a hand to, to get further up the ladder, and so they the other party isn't offering anything. It's it's a culture war strategy, and the more we can shift away from that uh, to uh, to bread and butter questions about uh, who, what are you offering, uh, and I, I so I I think it's that the, the kind of the substance is there, it, the politics isn't there yet, and I don't quite know how you get there, but. But that's where you want to want to be by by 2024. Great, Paula. A couple of quick things on the question of whether or not you go after voters that you know um, uh, uh, blue collar voters. The question becomes: Do you spend money going after people that probably are not going to vote for you anyway, mm -hmm. or do you spend the resources to shore up your base and to make sure? that you mobilize those people that turned out for you in 2020. Suburban women, I agree with Mark, if abortion becomes an issue, you know, that those women might not go back to the Republican party. They might stay uh, exactly um, where they were in 2020. But there's a couple things on the horizon, I think that we have to, to look at. Atlanta and the grand jury that's gonna be in panel there, you know, yesterday, the Southern District of New York, um, prosecution office and the attorney general office and the district attorney of the city of New York. Okay. All of these things are going to come to some conclusion at some point before 2024. Jacob, you get to take this home. All right. Well, first of all, 
It's been wonderful. This is an amazing conversation. I've learned so much. And thank you for these questions we can only touch the surface of, but we hope I hope they, that our answers have been somewhat illuminating. So um, I guess just picking up there and, and responding to your point about January 6th, I think we... I think a lot of the things that we think are going to matter are probably not going to matter very much. And just how, given how polarized um, opinion is, the extent to which people have kind of made up their mind on the, on many of these issues. And that, you know, that's why I think the fundamental thing that will matter is whether or not the pandemic, which we haven't talked about, we just sort of take for granted, you know, recedes enough that um, people can, can, can focus on some other things, including, I think, I said at the beginning, you know, not unqualifiedly good, but very good economic news, right? And if you had said that we'd have unemployment rate down, you know, below 4%, 6.4 million jobs created in 2021, you know, a year ago, I think many people would have been skeptical. And a lot of the power that we're seeing in the labor market for less affluent workers, that's going to have positive effects, even if it causes disruptions in the short term. And so that's, those are those are the people that need to be mobilized, as Paula was saying. Um, and some of those are Trump voters who may vote for a Democrat. Um, so to me, that's that's just really fundamental. And there's a lot of reason to think that those if the if the pandemic isn't the number one concern, that those issues would be more central. Last thing to say is just I feel like Democrats are just so depressed because of course the one thing they really wanted to do is big pass a big big legislation and so if there was a uh, a mansion build back better bill let's call it the next generation bill it's climate change child care right you know if they were able to do anything on those two fronts i think it'd be, you'd see just this like strange euphoria. People would be happily eating the crumbs of uh, the big crumbs from the loaf. And so to me, that's probably the most important thing that could happen prior to the midterm. But I just think we shouldn't overstate the impact of any of these events, given how polarized people are, but the fundamental issue of people, how, how well people feel they're doing in this economy is going to be the decisive issue, I think, in 2024. That's a great place to leave it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to listen to our distinguished panelists today. I want to thank all of you for joining us. Jacob, Paula, John, Ursula, Mark, many thanks to you for taking the time to share your thoughts about the Biden presidency and America's future. For our viewers, found them as helpful, constructive, and alas, hopeful as I did. So to everyone, from all of us at the Fallon United States Center at LSE, Stay healthy, stay safe. We'll see you next time. Bye now. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.